Okay, this morning for our uh, reading, if you would open to John chapter 1, we're going to read verses 19 through 51. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews were sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now then they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he, this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Then the next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anyone, anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, and when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because, you said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Please be seated. Good morning. Everyone awake this morning? Yes, good. Good, I hope so, because we've got a good word here. 
And I'm hoping that uh, everyone is, is ready to uh, open that word. Uh, I encourage you, if you don't have your word open, to have it open. Uh, we're going to be looking at, uh, for the most part, John chapter 1 uh, this morning. Before we do so, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. And we will get right to it. Father, we lift up your name this morning. And Father, we are grateful well, with joy on one hand, recognizing that you are the only true God. You are the ruler of all things. You are sovereign in your administration of all things. And Father, we also lift our hearts to you. On the other hand, realizing that who you are, who your son is, and who your spirit is. These identity markers are, for many in our world, they're debatable, they're controversial, and they're tragically uh, open, it seems, to public opinion. Now, Father, you have given to us your, your perfect word this morning. And in it we find a clear picture of your son Jesus. And regardless, Father, of how people might want to debate Jesus' authenticity... Regardless of how controversial the name of Jesus might be in our world today, and regardless of the sundry poles of public opinion about Jesus, we know, Father, from your word of truth, who Jesus really is. And Father, I thank you this morning for the gospel records that you've preserved for us. I thank you for Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. I thank you for these four specific accounts of the gospel of Jesus Christ, four accounts from four gospel writers moved by the same Holy Spirit. Four accounts that speak to one person. And compiled together these gospel records tell us who Jesus is, what he did, when he came to earth, where he came from, why he came, and how it is that he came from heaven to earth. And Father, to those here today who know this Jesus of the scriptures, I pray the Lord would solidify in their hearts and minds, the value of knowing him and the life that should result in knowing him. And for those who are here today, Father, who do not yet know this Jesus of the scriptures, I pray the Lord would grant to them fresh eyes to see, perhaps for the first time, what these scriptures have to say about Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you would give them light to see and that you would give them ears to hear the gospel truth. And by your grace, Father, I pray you would allow uh, some here today to experience what it is to be born again. And I pray that in all this place, Father, each one here might believe in the name of Jesus. And that believing, he might have life in his name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles open. Encourage you to be looking at John's Gospel, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. In John, chapter 1, we see that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the text says in verse 3 that. All things that were made were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Did you get that? Without him, nothing was made that was made. The Bible says that in him was life. And the life 
was the light of men. It says that the, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. It goes on to say that there was a, a man sent by God whose name was John. His name was John. And he came as a, uh, he came for a witness to bear witness, the Bible says. He was bearing witness of the light that all through him might what? Believe. Now he was not that light, speaking of John, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the light which gives light to all men coming into the world. And the Bible goes on and says that the world was the place where this logos, this word was. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. But listen to the next part of the verse. The world did not know him. In fact, it goes on and says, he came to his own. And his own did not receive him. But as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become what? Children of God. To those who, here's one of his favorite words in this gospel. You might even underline it if you haven't done it already. To those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh... Nor of the will of man, but of God. I love the transition here from 13 to 14. The Word, picking up his reference from verse 1, the Word became what? Flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt. Among us, John says. And we beheld, not only did we see, we beheld, we, we got to see him. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's interesting what John says here. Because he goes on, he goes back to talk about John the Baptist. And he says, John bore witness of him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. For he was before me. Remember, because he was in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. He was in the beginning with God. John had a recognition of who Jesus was. Verse 16, and of his fullness we have all received. From grace to grace. He says in verse 17, for the law, the law was given through whom? Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And listen to what he says in verse 18. This is an amazing thing if we think about it. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, 
who is in the bosom of the Father. He, the word in the original language, it's actually a demonstrative pronoun. This one. This one. Who's the this one? It's the word. It's the light. It's the reference to Jesus Christ. This one has declared God. The first 18 verses are considered, church, as the the prologue of John's gospel. A prologue is an entry point for the reader. A prologue is is a sampling of what's to come. A a prologue whets the appetite for the remainder of the message being communicated by the author. In John chapter 1, 1 through 18, it serves the purpose of a prologue. There's no doubt about it. But it's also one of the greatest leads given in the account of the Gospels. I hope this morning you're privy to what a lead is. You pick up the newspaper and you read an article. By the way, in case some of you don't know, there are still some things called newspapers today. You flip through them. Kind of like a book. You open it. Read it. A newspaper. And in the newspaper you see all of these articles. You see headlines in bold type. But then... Right underneath, right in the beginning, it's usually one or two sentences, maybe a beginning paragraph, that make up the lead of a given story. It captures the main idea of what follows. In his article, How to Write a Lead Paragraph, Mark Nickel, he defines what a lead does. He said, a lead convinces the reader that the article is worth reading. He goes on to give some Highlights of an effective lead. It provides the main points without digressing into details. It tells the reader something interesting or newsworthy. It speaks to the reader's curiosity and perhaps their desires or or fears. It might introduce conflict. It might introduce controversy. The challenge, he says, to writing a good lead is including both specificity and brevity. A good lead makes every word count. A good lead is like, he says, an elevator speech. You ever heard of an elevator speech? An elevator speech is when you get on an elevator. You know that thing that goes up and down? And you get on there, and you have usually uh, 30 seconds to a minute. You've got a stranger who comes on, and if you were to, the hypothetical, if you were to share some information to this stranger on the elevator in the small amount of time that he's on the elevator with you, How would you communicate that message in that short period of time? That's really the role of a lead. It's giving you a quick synopsis, an understanding of what's coming. We see that in the context of the lead, the Lord has given to us, I believe in the Gospels, four specific leads... And starting today and running through the month of December, I'd like to take each one of these Gospels and preach, whether in part or in full, the first chapter of each Gospel. The Gospel accounts are the first four books of the New Testament. 
the first four books of the New Testament. We've got a few young folks in here. Um, let's see here. Can you help me out with one of the New Testament books, Ben? New Testament? What? John is one of them. He's on it. He knows John. That's where we're at today. That's good. How about you? New Testament? Gospel? Anybody? Kurt, give me one of them. Gospel. John? Give me one of them besides John. There's three others. Matthew, says Isaac. How about right here? Mark, what's the other one? Luke. Excellent. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Okay, if we don't know what those are, that's where we're putting them forward here. That's where we're going to be going. We're not going to go in the order in which they appear in the scriptures. I do believe and hope that as we progress through them, you'll understand why I began with John and didn't begin with Matthew. Okay? I believe in many ways John is, is foundational. It's a foundational gospel for us to understand. And so beginning there with John. So uh, I'm hoping that they're being preached in a way that will be most helpful to you. Um, as you heard John's prologue being read, you, you, you probably understand, at least in part, why John's gospel is the one first out of the gate. In terms of, of how each gospel writer leads out, I believe John, in his gospel, is unique. He lays the groundwork, he's, he's, he lays the grid, the framework for who this Jesus is. And before elaborating on his ministry and his works and what he did, John is primarily concerned with making sure the listener knows who he is. That, that to me is, is so significant in what we're talking about here. John is wanting desperately, I believe, to help us identify who this Jesus is. Don't you think this is quite relevant in the midst of a world we live in today? A world that likes to add to, substitute, delete from what we know to be the truth found in the Word of God. Here we have a gospel writer who is primarily concerned right out of the gate in chapter 1 of identifying this Jesus. Keep in mind, the one who was writing, John, is the one who knows Jesus very well. This is one who spent lots of time with Jesus. In fact, if you read his first epistle, you see that that which was from the beginning, that which we heard, that which our hands have, have touched, our eyes have seen, right? He's giving witness and testimony to the fact that he was with Jesus at the time he arrived on the scene. So what we're reading here is not about an individual writing far removed about this man, Jesus. We're reading an account from a man who is moved by the Spirit in writing, a man who spent years with Jesus, walking with Jesus. That's the person writing this gospel. If John's gospel is written near the end of the first century A.D., which I believe it is, then it's also important for us to understand that it's written in the midst of great turmoil, persecution, as it pertains to the church of Jesus Christ. Roman Emperor Domitian is reigning. The fall of Jerusalem is now 20 to 30 years in the rearview mirror. And Christianity is looked down upon. It's shunned. It's targeted as an unacceptable religion to practice. Subject to persecution, even to death. So you have a gospel here. We think about the gospel and 
we think of good news, right? The gospel message, the good news of Jesus. This gospel is written in the midst of anti-Christian times. A gospel that teaches and promotes a Jesus who, if adhered to and followed... And see, here's the catch. There are many of us today in 2015 who adhere to being a follower of Jesus. We proclaim with our lips that we are a follower of Jesus. But it's safe not necessarily to follow this Jesus. We we like being embraced by the world. It's, it's the Christianity that likes to straddle instead of what Jesus advocates for those who follow him. Two hands to the plow, not looking back. You see, John was writing this gospel at a time when real suffering, persecution, possible death was imminent. If you proclaimed and followed this Jesus. In the midst of that context comes John's gospel. Written to herald the good news of Jesus. To proclaim his, listen to this, proclaim his deity. Now there were no other folks in John's day that you were to be upholding other than the emperor. The one who was in charge. He was the king. He was the one to whom all allegiance was due. But along comes this gospel. And John is proclaiming and identifying Jesus. And he's stating with great certainty that this Jesus is the Christ. He is, in fact, the Son of God. He is, in fact, we see in verse 1 of chapter 1, He is God. If John were around today, and he was stirred to write an article to the world about the gospel of Jesus Christ... I believe these first 18 verses, while a bit long for a lead in today's paper, I believe these 18 verses would serve as ample evidence for defining who Jesus is. And the lead, the lead oftentimes is shedding light. If we were to think about the lead in this way, think about it as identifying the who, identifying the what. Identifying the when, the where, the why, the five W's, right? Good journalism. If you've done your journalism, you know those are the the, the good foundation building blocks of good journalism. Identify the five W's and the H, the how. Now, a lead doesn't always have all of those specifically. Oftentimes the lead will address one or two right up front. But we see that as we look at this, every lead captures at least a couple of these pertinent details at the beginning. And in John's gospel, I believe he is concerned with identifying, here it is, he's concerned with identifying who this Jesus is. Who? He's helping us in the lead, in the prologue of chapter 1, helping us identify who Jesus is. And as he's moved by the Holy Spirit, John writes this gospel to help the world see exactly who Jesus is. A world that at the time wanted little or nothing to do with Jesus. A world that once hosted the Son of God. 
and yet did not know him. A world that in large part failed to receive him as the Christ, as the Messiah. Fast forward to 2015. We are far removed from the writing of John's gospel now. And yet, isn't it still true that many in the world want little or nothing to do with this Jesus? Isn't it apparent that many still do not know him? Isn't it obvious that the name of Jesus is offensive even yet today? The context might be a bit different from first century to 21st century. But the need for John's gospel hasn't changed much. The need for it. You know, as I'm studying this week, I'm I'm reminded and refreshed once again as to why. And I've seen a lot of times you see people circulating and distributing the gospel of John to people. And, And you hear people talk about, you know, people who are just trying to get in and understand about who Jesus is. One of the 66 books of the Bible that are oftentimes submitted and put forward to read first, to read right out of the gate, is what? The gospel of John. Why is that? I believe, it's, I believe it's this way because John, unlike any of the other writers, John is passionate about identifying and making sure everyone, the whole world, understands who Jesus is. Do we approach our living, our days that are but brief, do we approach our lives here with this same passion to know this Jesus? I believe the more we read this gospel of John, it's my hope and prayer that it infuses within us a desire and a passion to know him and to, as he says in his first epistle, to continue to believe in his name. That we would be assured of what we know to be true about Jesus so that we can live with an assurance, not a fear, but an assurance of who Jesus is. And walk with confidence, not arrogance, but confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that this Jesus serves as the anchor, the hope for our soul. Well, as we venture through the gospel leads over the next few weeks, I'd like to pinpoint the leads for each gospel writer. And I'd like to point out how he begins and and see how the lead prepares us for what is yet to come. And I'd like you to see the questions that are being addressed by the writer What main questions does the writer bring to the surface in the context of the lead chapter of each gospel? Does he focus on the who? Does he focus on the what, the when, the why, the how? Is he concerned with how this good news is spreading? And I'd like you to ask yourself, which of these questions are being highlighted by the gospel writer? Here's the gospel lead, I believe, for John. This is the lead. If I was to craft a lead for John's gospel and reading the 21 chapters of John, it would be that Jesus is the Son of God. And believing in Him, you have everlasting life. Jesus is the Son of God. And believing in Him, you have everlasting life. 
You know, I, I read John and I, and I come away with one word to describe John. If I had one word, if I was to boil it all down, one word, identification. That's the word I would use. Identification. Because as you read the scope of John's gospel, you, you see that John is writing to communicate the identity of Jesus. He's writing to accurately describe his identity. He writes not solely to identify Jesus, to hold him up as simply to say, here's who he is, put it in your memory bank. While it's true that you know who he is from an intellectual standpoint, I believe John is writing to see that his listener genuinely knows him, genuinely knows him and is enabled through this identity that he puts forth to establish an intimate relationship with him. So it's not just about knowing him, knowing of him. It's about having a relationship with him. It's believing and receiving. Each of the gospel writers highlights something specific of Jesus. And for John, the theme might read Jesus as deity or Jesus as God. You read the Gospel of John and you see that John is impressing the deity of Christ in his Gospel. Many references in, in fact, some 30, 35 references to Jesus making reference to his Father. His Father, Jesus' Father, which would make him the Father's Son. Or as we see in 118, the only begotten Son, the unique Son. The first two verses capture the theme of the entire gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or literally, God was the Word. He was in the beginning with God. And I read those two verses and I think to myself, what a lead. That is an incredible lead. It tells us a lot about this Jesus. In the first two verses, John wastes no time identifying Jesus. He's deemed the Word. And we can go to 114, and we see here in just a moment, we'll, we'll talk a little further about the Word. Jesus is around in the beginning. He is eternally preexistent. He is eternally preexistent. He is with God, which describes his separate person. He's a separate person of the Godhead. We talk about God is one, and there are three persons in the Godhead, right? There is God the Father, there's Jesus the Son, and there is the Holy Spirit. Each of them are distinct in their persons, but they share the same essence. They are, in places in Scripture, all referred to as God. The Holy Spirit is God. Read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and you see the account there where the Spirit is referenced to God. Jesus is God, God himself. We see that Jesus is God. He shares that same essence. And we see also there in those first few verses that before creation came into being, Jesus was around with God. Now, this is so important for us to get a handle on because some today are holding that Jesus was the first created by God. Listen, Jesus wasn't created by God. Jesus was around in the beginning with God. Do we understand the difference? Jesus is not a created being. 
He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. John's primary lead is answering the who question. He's concerned with who this Jesus is. And I want you to see from John chapter 1 how knowing Jesus is intended to make a difference in your life. Because, hey, we can go through and we can talk about how to identify Jesus. How did John identify Jesus? If we don't ever ask the question, so what? How does this make a difference in my life? If we don't ever point to what's John doing, how then does this impact my life today? If we don't ever get there, all this becomes is an exercise in intellect. We gain some information that's, that's helpful. I believe it's most helpful if we gain the information and understand the intended purpose for that information. It's not so that we can have it stored in our brains and go, wow, that's really good stuff. It's so that we might live differently today. John's given this gospel that you might believe in this Jesus that he's talking about. That you might, by faith, trust in him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. That you might repent from your sin. That you might turn to him in faith. That you might now live a life that's befitting repentance. A turning from sin, a turning to God. There's a life that's to be lived out here. A life is at stake. Souls are at stake. I hope we can see that. In what we're reading. John 20 verse 31 is a verse that you can hold closely connected to what we're talking about here. Because in many ways that is the purpose for which he's writing. John 20 verse 30. He said there's a lot of things that Jesus did. But he said these things. Talking about the things in this gospel that he's written. These things are written that you might Believe, believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, the one that many of the Jews in particular missed. The one that even still today, many people in the world have missed. The one who is referred to as the stumbling block. This Jesus, the Messiah, who, oh, by the way, John says, he's also the son of God. And that believing in this Jesus, you may have life. What kind of life? John chapter 10 tells us what kind of life Jesus came to give us. Not a lethargic life. Not a life that walks around ho-hum. A face that speaks to a heart that says, gloomy, pessimistic, argumentative, bitter. No, he didn't come for that kind of life. He didn't come to give you that kind of life. He came to give you, the Bible says, an abundant life. An abundant life. That's the kind of life he he intended to give. That's the kind of life he offers. John is identifying Jesus that his listener might believe in Jesus. By the way, just a side note. If you don't think that believe is an important word in John, just do a study on it. Just do a study Some 98 references to believe in John's gospel alone. 21 chapters, 98 references. You know, you've heard it said that if it's repeated, it's pretty important. 
And I believe that John is submitting how important it is not just to know this Jesus, but to believe with all of your heart to believe this Jesus. This is the Jesus we're to believe. And he just keeps impressing it and impressing it and impressing it upon the souls of his listeners. Belief in Jesus, friends, speaks to faith and trust. Belief in Jesus gives everlasting life. It's that whole idea of looking to the sun and living. He uses that picture Jesus does in John chapter 3 as he's speaking to Nicodemus. And he goes back to the reference in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers about how they lifted that bronze serpent upon the pole. And he likens that Old Testament idea to what was yet to come when he was going to be lifted up on the cross. Remember that? It's led to John 3.16, which we, most of us in here know that verse. But the, the precursor to that was look to the sun. Look to the sun and live. Belief in Jesus translates to a life of discipleship, following the master, living daily in the presence of the one who made you. Belief in Jesus affects all of your relationships, all of them. Belief in Jesus makes a difference in how you approach all of life, how you go about your work, how you do things in your household, how you go about your work, young people. You have schoolwork you're doing. It, when you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, it ought to affect your math. It ought to affect your English. It ought to affect your history. It ought to affect your writing. It ought to affect everything you're doing. Because we do everything we do for whom? For the Lord. We steward all things for him. Believing in Jesus ought to make a difference. Believing in Jesus means that you are now an ambassador for him, living as a citizen of heaven while operating in foreign territory here. Because remember, this world that we live in here is not our home. Belief in Jesus helps us hold the things of this world loosely, not tightly. When we believe in Jesus, we understand that things are passing away. In fact, the same John wrote that in his first epistle. Do not love the world or the things in this world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, all these things are what? What's he say? They're passing away. All these things are passing away. So don't hold on to them tightly. Belief in Jesus helps us understand that we can store up our treasures not here, but where? In heaven. In heaven, where they belong. Belief in Jesus also prepares us for the day that's yet to come. It awakens us to the reality of his second coming. And in light of that second coming, it ought to and should jolt us to the importance of persuading men, as Paul says. Understanding the judgment to come, I persuade men in order to receive Jesus. How long do we have to see that people hear and know this Jesus of whom John speaks? We have until they are without the breath of life in them. They are here for a while and they're gone. In fact, you are here for a while and you're going to be gone. I'm here for a while and I'll be gone. I look forward to the day being with Jesus. What a day of rejoicing it will be. I enjoy singing now. I'm going to enjoy singing immensely when that time comes. Friends, believing in Jesus makes all the difference. And perhaps this morning you need to be asking a question as we're looking at John 1. You're thinking to yourself, wow, it really does affect, it's intended to affect all of these things. And maybe asking yourself a question, 
Does my belief in Jesus Christ, the Jesus that John is testifying to in chapter 1, does my belief in Jesus have that kind of impact in how I'm living right now? Perhaps we need to ask that question. Does my believing in Jesus look like what John is, is put on paper here for us to see as he's writing through the Holy Spirit? Does, does my life reflect this kind of believing? John's gospel, remember, is written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that believing you may have what? Life in his name. And if he's written that you might believe in Jesus, this explains the significance of identifying this Jesus. Doesn't it? John, from chapter 1 through 21, he's clearly identifying who he is in order that all might believe in him and have life. No belief in Jesus, no receiving him as the Christ, no receiving him as Lord, no receiving him as Savior, no life. Like that pile of dry bones that Ezekiel saw a few weeks ago. Remember that? No life. They had flesh and bone. They, they looked like human beings. But the picture that's presented for us there was lifelessness. There was no life. What is it that brought life? He prophesied to the breath, didn't he? The breath in them. Just like in creation, Genesis chapter 2. God created man. He made him and formed him from the dust of the ground. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man then became what? A living being. You see, it is not until the God of heaven breathes life into you. And that life, John says, how you get that life. He doesn't leave it open to, how do I get it? He tells us. He shows us in identifying Jesus. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. He tells us who he is. A little bit later, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He doesn't leave it open for ambiguity. He answers the question. No one comes to the Father except through whom? Through the Son, John 14, 6. So here we are. It's, it's Christmas season, isn't it? Christmas season, the month of December, everyone, I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced that in the month of December, everyone, let me say it this way, most everyone is happier in the month of December than in the other 11 months of the year. Now, there are some, I understand that holiday season is difficult, especially if there's a lost and a loved one. It can be difficult. But what I find as I travel around and as I'm visiting different places, Generally speaking, people tend to be happier, bubblier. Maybe they're just happy because they're going to have some time off work. I don't know. But they tend to be happier. My encouragement to each of you is, as we celebrate and look at this Christmas season, as we look at the arrival of this Jesus, this Emmanuel, God with us, I want you to see from John's gospel that long before the arrival of Jesus here to earth, Jesus is with God. He's in the beginning with God. And Jesus, the word, is himself God. 
John is going back before time as we know it, and he's establishing the identity of Jesus. He is eternally preexistent. He's God in the flesh, and it's through him that men have life. It's only through him that men can have everlasting life. A lot of people are searching for a lot of things today. I believe John and his gospel would point them to this one thing. This one thing. If people knew but this one thing. If they knew who this Jesus of the scriptures is. If they knew who it is they were to put both feet in and follow this Jesus. And not look back. But follow him. If they but knew this. I believe John is saying in his gospel here that. This world would be much different. That the lives represented here in this place would be much different. Knowing Jesus, friends, I hope that you would agree, knowing Jesus does make all the difference. I'd like to give you in bullet form fashion. So if you're writing, taking notes, it's going to go quickly. But I want to give you in bullet form fashion some identity markers just predominantly here in John chapter 1. Okay? And I'm going to give these to you because we've already talked about in his lead, this prologue. In his lead, he's, he's concerned with who, who, who Jesus is. So I just want to point out some identity markers right here in John chapter 1 that tie into this lead, this big idea of helping us answer the who question. We see, first of all, the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. We see also in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word. When we think about the word, the logos, we think about a, a word, something that's communicated, something that's spoken. We think about um, a message that's delivered. And we see that in verse 14, the word became flesh. Became flesh. Took on flesh and bones, if you will. He transitioned from the heavenlies, we know with that chorus, he came from heaven to earth, right? He did that. And that's what verse 14 speaks of. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us as, as one in a tent. You remember the old days in the Old Testament where they, the tabernacle was in place. And really this idea here, what's being expressed in, in 114, is speaking to how the word, how he became flesh and how he dwelt, dwelt. He tabernacled among us. Remember who's writing? He's writing this one who has been with Jesus, one who has seen and beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. John knows this Jesus of whom he writes. And this tabernacle concept is very significant, very important. Because in the Old Testament, it was significant to the life of the people of God. I was, I was reminded uh, through uh, looking at, at Boyce and his commentary, he gave some some tie-ins to thinking about the word dwelling among us, tabernacling among us. And he talked about how the tabernacle was the, the center of Israel's camp. And just as the tabernacle was the center of Israel's camp, so Christ ought to be the center of the Christian encampment. He talked about how the tabernacle was the place where the law of Moses was preserved. And we see that in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, Christ comes and he is deemed the end of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He says that the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God. You remember the Holy of Holies? Christ himself 
is the glory of God. Christ himself is the one declaring this God. He says, because the tabernacle was the place where God dwelled among his people, it's also the place of revelation. You remember that place at the tabernacle where God met with the people, the tent of meeting? Remember that? Christ himself comes and he dwells among men. He tabernacles among them to speak a word to them. He is the word. He's the one who's come from heaven. This tabernacle, says Boyce, was also the place where sacrifices were made. And we see that also true in this word become flesh. Because this logos came not just to live, but he came to what? He came to die. He came to sacrifice himself. Not because he just thought it was a good idea. He did that out of his love for you and me. In fact, we see in just a moment, we see in John chapter 1, we're going to see this reference, another reference to who he is, that he is the Lamb of God. And finally, Boyce says the tabernacle was the place where the people of Israel worshipped. It's the place where people of Israel worshipped. We think about the Lagos come down, becoming flesh, tabernacling among us. And during that day when he was here, no doubt the people were able to worship those who understood, those who did receive him. But friends, there's coming a day in the book of Revelation, which is also written by John. In the book of Revelation, it tells us that much of what we're going to be doing in heaven, we are going to be worshiping this lamb. We're going to be worshiping Christ, the king. Let's practice now. I believe now he's given us time to be doing. Listen, if you don't enjoy worship now, heaven's going to be a miserable place for you. Think about it. If you read Revelation, one of the things I see as I read Revelation is there's a lot of worshiping the Lamb. We just sang that song, didn't we? That's what we're going to do, friends. If this is boring to you, if worship is, eh, you need to take some inventory because heaven is going to be worshiping the Lamb of God. That's, that's what we're going to do. That's who he's made us to be, friends. We're here to give him glory and to worship, enjoy him forever. The word in himself, he bears the message. He brings the good news in himself, the word. Second, creator. Keep moving. The creator. We see that in verse 3. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. We see it also in verse 10. The world was made through him, right? He came into the world. The world was made through him. It's almost as though there he's emphasizing in verse 10, Jesus himself was in the world. And then he tells us that, in fact, the world was made through him. And somebody's building this case. And then, then, he, then he tells us the world didn't know him. Oh, think about it. He, he was in the world. He was there. Their eyes could see him. He was there. And in fact, not only was he there, but he made the world. And yet that world didn't even. He's the creator. He's the word. He's the creator. The life. Verse 4. In him was life. Tied into the next one, the light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We see in verses 7, 8, and 9. 
speaks of John, talking about John's relationship to, to Jesus, this light, right? This man, John, came for a witness to bear witness of the light. Why? Why did John do that? Why, was, why, did he, why did he get sent from God to do such a thing? He was doing it that all through him might believe. Listen, John's not the only one today, friends, who ought to be bearing witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. John was sent by God. All of us in here, if we are in Christ Jesus, we too have been sent by God to bear witness to Jesus Christ. That's our mission. If we forget our mission, Acts 1-8 helps us. Wait for the power from on high. Okay, we look on the timeline of events. The power from on high has come. Acts 2, Holy Spirit came. With this power from on high, what are we to do? What are we to do? What's he say? We are to be witnesses to Jesus with the power we've been given from on high. Are you doing that? That's what John did. I think sometimes we look at John and, 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 and other folks, Paul, other people in the, in the scriptures, and we, like to, we, we tend to elevate them and think that they are you know, holier than thou, so to speak, and, and oh, I could never reach that. I could never do that. But I, I want to let you know this morning that just as God sent this man, John, to bear witness of the light, Jesus Christ, so too he has for you, each one of you, if you are in Christ, male, female, in Christ, Each one of you are his ambassador to bear witness to this Jesus of whom John speaks. The light. The light. Know that you're light. When you have the life of Jesus, right? The life was the light of man. That light he gives, he shines, the spirit illumines, helps you. And it says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. Light shines in the darkness, and that darkness did not comprehend it. It's true that in one way, darkness did not comprehend it. That's one of the reasons why you read John's gospel, or excuse me, you read the other three gospels, and you see Jesus teaching in parables. They didn't get his parables, did they? Light came, it exposed the darkness. Sometimes, oftentimes, darkness didn't comprehend it. Another translation of that word comprehend is overcome. It is also true that darkness did not overcome the light. It's also true, while it didn't overcome the light back in the day, it looked like it, oh, it looked like it on the day when he was hanging on the cross, but what happened three days later? He was raised. The light was victorious. The light was victorious. Listen, if you are in Christ today, you too are victorious. It might not look good where you're at. You might have a lot of people looking down on you. You might be shunned because you are proclaiming the name of Jesus. But I want you to know, however bad it might be here, it's going to be what a day it's going to be when you are with him, with Jesus in heaven. Don't think of the temporal. Don't think of the what's now. It's nothing compared to what's yet to come. The life and the light. The authority, I just, the authority, he's the authority. Verses 12 and 13, I love these two verses. These two verses can preach in and of themselves. As many as received him, his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right. He gave the right. If he, listen, if he's given the right, he has the authority. Doesn't it make sense that he has the authority if he is God, if he was with God in the beginning? He's the authority. Friends, we need to understand this. We live in a culture today that doesn't want anything to do with authority. We like to do our own thing. John is telling us right up front who this Jesus is. And one of the things he says about this Jesus is that Jesus is the authority. 
God has given authority in John's gospel, it says. He's given all authority to his son. If you don't like the fact that he has authority, that's something that you need to work out with God. Because God's given authority to his son to judge. You know what? There's going to be a day when judgment's coming. And you know what the standard of judgment is going to be? It's going to be righteousness. You know who's going to be meeting out the judgment? God's son, Jesus. That's going to be a deal. It doesn't matter whether you like the authority or not. The authority is in place. You can argue with it all you want. You can disagree with it, but the authority is in place. He has given the right to as many as received him, to those who believe in his name. The authority. So we have the word, the creator, the life, the light, the authority. How about the savior? The savior. Verse 29. Next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb of God. He says it again in verse 36, looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, the Savior. John is already pointing to the cross to come. You see, it's in identifying who this Jesus is. The identification markers of this Jesus helps us understand the what of what he was going to be doing. Knowing who he is helps us understand what he did. Also gives us understanding of why he came. Because we were sinners in need of a savior. We needed a savior. And John's saying right out of the gate through John the Baptist, look. There's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. You see, the people of the day were used to making sacrifices, weren't they? Bringing their own animals in and having them sacrificed. And John is pointing them to something that is completely different. A new covenant way of thinking. And that new covenant is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. The Savior. The Son of God is another reference. Look at verse 18. No one seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who was in the bosom of the Father. Verse 34, John the Baptist says, And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Nathaniel says in verse 49, he answers Jesus and says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. The Son of God. The Messiah is another reference, a marker in chapter 1. The Messiah or the Christ. Look at verse 41. Andrew finds Simon, his brother. He first found Simon and said, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. We have found him. We found him. This is the one. We found him. Look at verse 45. Philip finds Nathaniel and says, We found him. We found him, the one whom Moses wrote of in the law and also the prophets wrote of Jesus of Nazareth he's the Messiah the Christ the son of Joseph we see also the reference to the teacher or the rabbi the teacher we see in 38 Jesus turned seeing them following him says what do you seek and they said rabbi which is to say when translated teacher Where are you staying? We see that the um, 49, Nathaniel answers again. He says, 
Rabbi. That's what he refers to him as Rabbi. You are the Son of God. And we see in verse 18, if we go back to 18, Jesus himself was teaching the people as he came here to earth, as he tabernacled among men, what was he doing? He was declaring God. He was teaching people about who God is just by the simple fact that he was there. His life declared God. He was showing people the Father. In fact, in the gospel, he tells Philip, Philip, have you seen me and been around me for so long and you do not recognize that I, seeing me, you've seen the Father? The teacher. He's a teacher who is teaching the people about who God himself is. He's also the king of Israel. Look at verse 49. Another reference to Nathaniel. Nathaniel throws out a couple identification markers here of this Jesus. You are the king of Israel. And then verse 51, Jesus himself gives a self-identifying son of man. Hereafter you shall see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. So, so what we see here in these 11 markers, we have the word, we have the creator, we have the life, we have the light, the authority, the savior, the son of God, the Messiah or the Christ, the teacher, the king of Israel and the son of man. The lead is helping us identify the who in this gospel. The who is Jesus and, and John is explaining the person of Jesus in, in multifaceted ways in John 1. I want you to notice that the identification markers of Jesus point to the past. And we see references to the eternal word. We see references to the creator. The identification markers of Jesus Christ also point to Christ's time on earth. He was the word in the flesh and he came to communicate. He came to declare God while he was in the flesh. He was the rabbi. He was the teacher. He was known as Jesus of Nazareth. There was a pinpointing of location, a Jesus of Nazareth. And he was the son of whom? Joseph. But these identification markers of Jesus, I believe, are also pointing forward both to our day and the day, capital D, to come in these terms, Messiah, the king of Israel. The Son of Man. The Son of Man has the eschatological, I can't say that word very well, eschatological, the end times understanding of who this Jesus is, the Son of Man. All these references are found right here in the first chapter of John. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's interesting to me that he's writing of something that's yet to come in John's Gospel and yet writing of something that has happened. As we stand here on the other side of the cross, these things have been written, friends, that you might believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have everlasting life in His name. If all you had was the lead chapter of John's Gospel, you would have enough to know the truth that has the power to set you free. John chapter 1, you have enough. Jesus tabernacled in the flesh for a time, and he served, as we just sang, as the precious lamb of glory. He redeemed man through the cross, through death in his own flesh. And John chapter 1 identifies Jesus, the who, and he connects these identities throughout his gospel with the purpose, not that people might be filled with knowledge alone, 
but that they might believe. Let's not discard the identification sources in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the vine. Are those not, friends, identification markers of who Jesus is? See, it's not just in John 1. If you keep reading all of John's gospel, you're going to see this theme all throughout John's gospel. He is communicating himself to the world about this gospel, this good news message of Jesus. And his desire is that all men would come to know him and believe in him by faith, that they would live their lives for him all of their days. My hope and prayer is as you read, in particular, those first 18 verses, that prologue, the lead of John's gospel, that you would remember, Jesus is the Son of God. And believing in Him, you will have everlasting life. And there's no need to wait for that, friends. We, we see these first 18 verses He came to the world and the world didn't receive him. In fact, he came to his own people and they didn't even receive him. While that's downer, while that's bad news, perhaps the good news and the upside is, but as many as received him, there's hope and there's an invitation. He's holding out his identity, not so that you just would know about him. He's holding out the identity so that you would embrace and receive And live for him. And walk with him all of your days. Do you believe in this Jesus that John is speaking of? Are you living this day for this Jesus that John writes of? I want you to know this morning that everlasting life, everlasting life only comes to the one who is truly born of God. Through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given to us a clear picture of your identity, in particular, your identity of your Son. He is the express image, the icon of you, Father. He has declared you to men in word, in deed, in his appearing. Father, we are now on the other side of the cross and we are able to see in what you have revealed to us through your word. You've given to us revelation, understanding, awareness of who your son Jesus is. And you've shown us that there are many who have come before us who have chosen not to believe and not to receive this Jesus of whom John writes. Father, it's my prayer today that all those seated in the chairs today, all those who have heard this word, would come to believe in the name of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that believing, each one 
might have everlasting life in his name. Oh, may it be so, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that as we receive this good news unto ourselves, that it would impact all that we do, all that we say, that it would spur us on to see that others also know of this Jesus of whom John writes. Oh, Father, thank you for these words in John chapter 1. And I pray that we would treasure them greatly. Do your work in us, Lord. Convict us, challenge us, move us. Awaken us to the realities of who you are. I pray, Father, that we would walk each day in light of the identity of Jesus Christ. Being in Christ, may it make a difference in how we live each one of our days. And may you get great glory through it. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.